they actually proposed the notion of blowing up TSMC. So this is $280 billion over five years. Two of the big technology stories of the year was the story around Lambda Chatbot. And now we have the ChatGBT. The blending of the experimental equipment and supercomputing was another interesting thing. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, everyone. It's Doug Black, and I'm with Shaheen again for At HPC Podcast. Shaheen, great to be with you as always, and I hope you're enjoying your holiday week. Indeed, yes. This is a great time to wish happy holidays to all of our listeners. Thanks for being with us. Hope you get some time to relax and think about other things and have fun with friends and family. This episode, of course, will be another one of our special double issues, end of the year issues, in which we kind of reflect on the past year and look ahead at some of the important trends that we're seeing coming up for next year. Topic one, HPC in general. Just stepping back for a moment, looking at HPC as an industry, Hyperion Research put 2023 revenues, total revenues for all technologies and services related to HPC at $43 billion, and that's 10% year-over-year growth. And looking ahead a few years to 2026, their forecast is a $50 billion industry. So pretty impressive. Yeah, so it's nice to see HPC to continue to grow. It started out with very small sizes, and now it's pushing $50 billion. That's a giant achievement and also a testimony on how HPC is becoming a more and more critical part of the IT infrastructure in general. Yeah, that combination of HPC and AI, it's really pushing increasingly into more and more market sectors beyond the supercomputing sector, but way into enterprise HPC. The enterprise is increasingly depending on and really deriving critical competitive advantage over the combination of HPC and AI. One way to think about that, as we've discussed on this podcast, is there is an avalanche of data. It needs to be made sense of. The only way to do that is through algorithms and numerically intensive computing. There are economically viable use cases, and there is available technologies to enable it. So you put it all together, and you've got the making of the growth of HPC-enabled or HPC-influenced applications that are gaining a foothold in the enterprise primarily AI at the moment. Yeah, the winners are always going to be the companies and people with the smarts to be able to leverage this technology. It just delivers tremendous competitive advantage. China. Let's talk about that because that continues to be a big topic in technology as a whole and certainly in HPC. China and Taiwan and the U.S. and semiconductor supply chains, just as an example, totally codependent, intertwined, but also really a major threat based on these geopolitical issues. So we have emerging trade restrictions, trade wars. It has a number of ramifications. We're seeing fabs being built in the U.S. that can produce these most advanced chips. But it's really unfortunate that we've moved into this period because we had a global structure in place, infrastructure in place, with supply chains in place that, as I say, have come under threat. And it's it's a terrible waste. <laughs> it's, it, it, I, I think a lot of us say, can't we all just get along? And <laughs> I don't know. 
Yes, no, it doesn't look like that's happening at the moment. So global fragmentation continues. Trade wars are in fact escalating in some ways, especially in the tech world. And I remember the article that you published in the earlier part of 2022, where mm-hmm. some academics were suggesting that the threat that China poses to Taiwan would require the kind of scenario planning that should incorporate actual war type activities, which was already a bit of a recalibration of the intensity of this situation. Well, yeah, they actually proposed the notion of blowing up TSMC. And it's obviously a result of that threat and that kind of thinking that has moved TSMC to build new fabs in Japan and the US, including two plants in Arizona capable of producing three nanometer and five nanometer chips. So things are really changing and the geopolitical problems are really causing major changes in our industry. This is why we talk about this as technopolitics, because it's so central. But as you were saying, Doug, it does have an impact on collaboration. We are seeing that China is not participating in sharing some of their advancements anymore. Not a lot of people really know what they're doing with quantum computing or exascale systems and such. So that's, that's definitely a price to be paid, but that's where we are right now in the world. So next topic is Exascale. That's certainly a super headline for the year that we, at least the U.S. has delivered its first Exascale system, Frontier. Previous to that, the Crusher test development platform. This is the AMD-powered HPE Cray built system. One of the really interesting stories this year was the drama involved in certifying Frontier's Exascale class level of compute. In time for the top 500 list announcement at ISC this spring, but you know we know China has had Exascale two or three systems, two systems for well over a year, but still, for the U.S. to have delivered this level of compute is a great, great accomplishment. Absolutely, I think Frontier really dominated the news at the very high end for the better part of this year. Obviously, because they executed and they executed really well, and they came in at just over one exaflops at 1.02 for HPL. And if you look at the AI-inspired benchmark HPL MXP, they were almost eight exaflops, 7.9 exaflops. It led to a whole bunch of very, very useful technological and future-oriented discussions. What are we going to do next? That led to a session at SC22 where reinventing supercomputing and what comes next was center stage. I know you covered also the DOE RFI that was going to inform the future generations of supercomputing. And we had Horst Simon as one of our distinguished guests that was really an excellent episode that I recommend our listeners to go fish up and listen to. Yeah. And the RFI, it calls for less of a monolithic system approach, more toward what they're calling modular and kind of interconnected networked capability. Now, we're still going to have gigantic in nor- you know, these absolutely large-scale systems as we move towards zeta-scale computing. But there's kind of a shift in the look. It, it might be slightly less general-purpose supercomputers over against supercomputers that have their role within a larger ecosystem. My read also was that this is moving more towards specialization and customization. Mm-hmm. If you have a collider on site, well, that itself is going to start looking like a supercomputer. If you have a particular you know, photon source, that is going to look like a supercomputer. That 
the blending of the experimental equipment and supercomputing was another interesting thing in my mind that will lead to more co-design and more specialization and customization. Yeah. Quantum computing, quantum science in general, our last episode was with the folks at Brookhaven National Labs and was a great status check of where quantum computing and quantum science is right now, quantum networking, quantum sensing. First of all, certainly a highly specialized aspect of supercomputing. There just seems to be an abundance and almost a critical mass of investment going into quantum, R&D going in, different public and private sector organizations involved in this around the world. And there are a number of significant announcements of advancements being made in quantum. It seems there's just a broad front. Now, where it all leads to and who the winners and losers will be or what the correct quantum technology strategy is, that's a long way off. But again, the the general sense of real progress being made is pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. So I started the year very positive on quantum computing. We had Bob Sorensen from Hyperion who took us through his projections of market sizing. A lot of that has panned out. He just released his next years and we should probably invite him to come and bring us up to date on that. Halfway through the year, I started being worried a little bit about are we overhyping this? And then I ended the year pretty positive again because the money continues to pour in. It is very clear that whether it's a public funding source or a private funding source around the world, some kind of a decision, strategic decision has been made that people want a seat at this table. They want to make sure that they don't miss out on this technology. So B, there's a lot of progress inside the supply chain. If you want to go build a thriving industry, you need a pretty rich supply chain, and that is developing rapidly from control equipment to whatever gadgets and doodads that you need to build it, to refrigeration, to chips, etc. All of that is being developed really nicely. And then the end user revenue is looking like, right now it's all test beds and kicking the tires and learning, but it's also around the corner. The conversation I had with some of the vendors a few weeks ago, some of them really think that within the next two, three years, there will be actual real applications that are going to show quantum advantage. And once you get there, then the competition with classical computing is no longer an issue. It is an issue right now, but you're not going to be able to simulate your way to that kind of performance. So that's interesting to see. Yeah. And your comments about hype are interesting. I mean, part of me worries that, again, quantum is so abstruse, (laughs) so, so complex, so difficult and kind of otherworldly, that there's a hype vulnerability there because not many of us fully understand it and can make discerning judgments on what's real and what isn't real. Yet, again, you know, I know, say, in the case of venture capitalists, you have interesting thoughts that these people, sure, they're putting money into quantum, but they're doing the good venture firms, the, the leading venture firms, do tremendous due diligence. They sure do. They sure do. They have access to very, very deep technology, talent, and if after all of that, if they decide to take a risk, well, that's part of the whole portfolio management that they do. And I think that's a good way to look at it. SC22, it was a big event and we were both there. Let's talk about that. Yeah, very, very successful event. I mean, uh, over 11,500 attendees. Unlike ISC, I've still not heard that SC turned into something of a super spreader event for covid ISC in the spring was a great event too, but certainly this SC 
22 in Dallas. I think we can say it was it was a great success. It really was. I thought it was HPC is back in person and everybody wanted to be there in person. There was a lot of energy and it was really delightful to see about 11,000 folks gathering in person. About 700 were online of that, but of the ones who had registered to be there in person, the vast majority showed up. Uh, thankfully, as you mentioned, it did not sound like it turned into a super spreader event, even though <laughs> not a lot of people wore masks, uh, no. I have to say, right, as we walked around. And That's of course, we did a post view of that a couple of weeks ago that, again, I want to call on our listeners to go check out. AI and its obvious and unavoidable link with HPC. And of course, it's in the news right now because of GPT-3. Yes, I was going to say that two of the big AI stories of the year, two of the big technology stories of the year, was the story around Lambda chatbot. There was a Google engineer who told the world <laughs> with great conviction that the Lambda chatbot is sentient with a soul. It really captured about a week long of technology coverage and discussion. And now we have the ChatGBT. It's a language processing AI that within a week of its availability online, it had more than a million downloads. Those obviously are very impressive achievements. And those who use them are surprised by the quality of the response that they see. Although if you use it for half a dozen times or a few days, you start seeing patterns that are a little bit worrisome, that mm. the text is not quite as meaningful as it is. It feels like the same pattern is emerging that you will detect. So there's definitely that, but it is a huge, huge achievement. The other thing that happened this past year was the emergence of data-centric AI as championed by folks like Andrew Wynn and other notables in AI. And that was really the balance between the quality of data and the strength of the learning models and the idea that the industry has put a lot of investment into learning and inference technologies and perhaps not enough in the quality of data. That if your data is good quality, then it can converge faster to better models that will in fact be more useful. And that's an important thing is that increasingly we're going to have to look at the quality of the data, the bias in the data, the validity, the reproducibility, the correctness, the completeness of data. And those all go against the volume, variety, velocity, value of data that is also true, but it cannot be taken for granted. Well, we know that one of the Gordon Bell Prize finalists at SC were users of the Frontier system, and they're using it for medical and therapeutic research based on the content of over 200 years of scholarly research, medical research in the leading medical journals. So that to me, you know, points to having a sort of a curated data pool from which insights can be drawn. Now, what they're doing with Frontier is trying to draw connections between different therapeutics that might lead to new combinations, leading to new drugs, new medications. But if you look at ChatGBT, I ran through an exercise. I just wrote a piece on silicon photonics. So I just said, write me an article about silicon photonics. It spit out 350 words. I skimmed it. And it was amazing. I know a friend of mine has asked it to write media relations strategy document and asked it over and over. And they've kind of looked through all the different results and we're kind of pulling what they thought were the best bits and pieces from this. But in any case, if you can have a curated sources of data, as opposed to just the internet generally, 
I don't know, Shaheen, we were talking about this. Maybe that would be a strategy for using chatbots and language processing AI like this, like Lambda and ChatGPT. Oh, I think it's a great idea. And I think that is also allows you to influence the result in a way that is more tailored to you. And it's also consistent with the data-centric AI approach because you can control the quality of the data. But as you mentioned, this thing is pretty impressive and it does a really good job. And while you can fool it and while it's sometimes really not very good at all, there are certain things that it can do fine. I kind of see it as a replacement, as a competition for a search engine, because now instead of Googling my way and getting to that conclusion, I can ask it to go and give me a report on what it finds. And that may not be a bad use case for it. Now, if Google said you have to register an account before you can use a search, I'm sure they could have many millions of users within a couple of days too. So I'm not too impressed by that, but I think the work that it does, again, represents a huge advance. Also, I have to say that while content creation may be getting automated, content consumption will get automated as well. So what does that mean? So that means that, you know, these bots are really doing a lot of things for each other and not for human beings. So, Mm. you know, I think that human beings are basically standing by the side of a digital pool that is teeming with bots of various sorts that are interacting with each other. And then we have a toe in, and that toe is kind of a judiciously decided toe. So a lot of what these technologies are doing is not even for the benefit of humans. It's for others. Because every time ChatGPT spews out a 1,500-word blog that you think is as good a blog as you know, you're going to want to do, there's somebody else who says, look at that blog and summarize it and tell me whether I should read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. it's kind of my joke about have your bot contact my bot. They'll schedule lunch. <laughs> nice, nice. And then they will miss lunch and they will send a letter of apology to each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny. All right. So next topic is the Turing Award. Yeah, Jack Dongara won it this year and... It's a nice financial reward, but more than that, it really recognizes for him a a lifetime achievement in HPC. Absolutely. I think it is the first time that is the Turing Award is being given to someone so centrally part of the HPC community and so well-deserved. Again, we had the great opportunity to have a podcast with Jack. I encourage you to go listen to that. It was really a wonderful account of all the contributions. So next topic is interconnects. Well, it it relates to Jack, as of course everything in HPC does. At SC22, they reviewed the top 500, uh, you know, the very top of the list, the winners, and within the different categories. And a topic, a theme that came out of the media briefing and also the Future of HPC presentation, which they had an all-star lineup of panelists, was the difference between peak performance on the Linpack benchmark over actual performance. And it's a severe, huge (laughs) gap there. And part of it relates to problems with interconnects, that this seems to be something of the lagging component area within supercomputers, the movement of data. And the movement of data is, it's expensive. It also leads to denser, hotter systems that need cooling and leads to electrical consumption costs that are really becoming a a critical issue on HPC. So the work in interconnects is just crucial work that's being done in in supercomputing. Yeah, absolutely. The really interesting piece of news this past year 
One was just the progress that PCIe continues to make. The roadmap looks really good. Then CXL, that has a bit of an overlap with PCIe, but sits on top and provides a whole bunch of capabilities and enables a bunch of things. And then UCIe, which is a chiplet interconnect technology inside a chip in a, in a substrate. Optical interconnects have been talked about forever. I remember Pat Gelsinger in his keynote talked about the work that he had done several decades ago on optical interconnects and how it was finally coming to fruition. And they had a really good demo with the folks in Scotland who were pursuing it at the Intel Labs. And then also some new technologies such as Rockport switching that is a decentralized P2P distributed kind of networking. But a lot of a lot of focus on data propagation and data movement becoming more efficient, higher bandwidth, lower latency, and occasionally maybe even with coherence. Yeah, the, the goal leading to more balanced systems, a balance between the interconnect and semiconductor power within the demands of handling gigantic volumes of data. The NVIDIA ARM deal that looked to me like it was a done deal only to not happen. Well, it was in the making for, I believe, 18 months. It immediately ran into protests from competing vendors, but also from regulatory agencies around the world in Japan, China, the US and UK. And NVIDIA finally gave up the ghost. But it's interesting with ARM since it's accessible technology for anybody who pays the licensing fee. So NVIDIA has continued to develop ARM-based chips. They just simply won't own the company. And, you know, it's, uh, it is it is a major story, but I wouldn't say it's been a, a tragedy for the industry or even for NVIDIA. You know, I always thought that ARM would get more out of this than NVIDIA would, because NVIDIA could, as you mentioned, just continue to use ARM, and it has. But if it could provide all of its technology and patents and IP and incorporate that into the ARM vehicle, I think that really would have advanced the industry in a good way that we're going to have to do a different way now. Also, it was notable that it was a really big deal at $40 billion, and there was a non-trivial down payment that was non-refundable, something like $1.25 billion. So it was big dollars, and it was big technopolitics drama that panned out the way it did. So a topic that's relevant to this is just the competition in the chip world between NVIDIA and AMD and Intel as the top three players, but then followed with probably at least a dozen chip vendors that are on a various short list of AI and networking silicon, and then probably another hundred or more that are at various stages of trying to compete in this market. So. I keep going back to 2015 SC in Austin, Texas, which in, in my limited perspective on things seemed to be the last year where x86 was so dominant, where Intel was so dominant. Now, the change had already happened, but it seemed after 2015, really this big bang, this explosion of processing architectures were really moved into the mainstream. And then you have the entry of AMD. And then, as you referenced, the AI specialty chip companies like Cerebrus, Sambanova, Grok, it's just this proliferation of technology. And then you've got enabling technologies like CXL, PCIe, UCI, you know, that are allowing them to speak with each other and work together. So it just seems we're going to continue to see this proliferation of architectures and heterogeneous computing. 
One final comment on chips. In the beginning, there was a whole discussion about x86 versus ARM versus RISC-V, all these instructions at architecture. And one effective way to think about this is that if x86 is so bad, how come AMD is thriving? That maybe it's not quite the instruction set, but the fabrication technology. And of course, that leads us into our next topic the Chips and Science Act. Right. And here, again, we see technology and advanced technology really moving into the mainstream, into the public square, even a rare instance of consensus on Capitol Hill, where there was backing, you know, bipartisan backing for a bill that would bring the U.S. back into the fabrication end of semiconductors. We had really outsourced it. But again, with the geopolitical problems and threats and all of that activity, the the idea is to move some of the supply chain back domestically. Yeah, I was really happy to see this because this is like an expression of, you want to see what we can do? This is what we can do. (laughs) It was quite nice. So this is $280 billion over five years. It was $52 billion for chips, $81 billion for the NSF National Science Foundation, $40 billion for DOE. $11 billion for DOC, Department of Commerce, and then $9 billion for NIST. And obviously, there's a big ecosystem that governs the chips and the ability to manufacture them at high end and in quantity. So it really is enough to be spread quite well across the supply chain that exists in the US. Kudos to everybody who made that happen. Yeah, just a recognition that semiconductors are absolutely essential to our daily lives, and we need to protect that. Well, you know, in a way, you could see that that's the next phase of the global competition is chips and the ability to manufacture the chips. And that's in contrast with what it was maybe 100 years ago when it was oil and the ability to extract and refine it. So you could also look around the world and consider that maybe, you know, some of the fights are yesterday's fights. Maybe this is really the leading edge of the competition going forward. Right. Software, a topic that is always more important than the attention that it gets. Yes, indeed. I've quoted this many times. I'll quote it one more time at least. I first heard this from Steve Connolly, that an HPC, hardware is easy and software is hard. And we often hear that software is really a laggard within supercomputing. It was nice to see some good progress, obviously, for GPU programming. NVIDIA has the lead in the market with their CUDA programming environment, and AMD has been catching up and doing a good job with their MI250 and the software suite that goes around that. And then there is uh, Intel with their One API, and they had a big set of activities with their last launch, something like a six-point plan with the development environment including AI, including compilers, FPGAs, GPUs, all of the above. And then, of course, the industry as a whole is making a lot of progress. Uh, You wrote some articles about what's happening from Linux all the way up to federated computing that are very interesting. Yeah, there is great work being done. Yeah, I guess uh, AMD's answer to CUDA is their Rockham programming environment. It's really interesting to talk to these companies about the resources, work, and emphasis they're putting on the programming side of things. Again, companies like AMD and NVIDIA, we think of them as chip design companies. They're really a lot more than that. That's a really good point. The prevailing opinion has been that chip companies can't do software. 
<laughs> and I think what we're observing with CUDA and now with Rockham and then with One API and Omniverse that NVIDIA is doing and everything that Intel doing, the whole quantum SDK that Intel and NVIDIA and others are doing, all of that is like saying, no, chip companies can do software. They just need to focus on it. It's part of their nurturing of ecosystems that enable their chips to be used. You know, Without those environments, you can only go so far. So by my count, we've done 11 topics, and the 12th one is fusion. Be a big news in the last couple of weeks on the milestone that was achieved. So let's chat about that. You covered it quite nicely and highlighted the impact that HPC has had in this, as well as many other advances that are relying on HPC. Well, it was interesting. I mean, Livermore's announcement of this fusion breakthrough, they certainly put a huge spotlight on it. It got tremendous coverage. Nowhere in their announcement did they mention HPC. So I spoke with the source there and just in a kind of a kidding, tongue-in-cheek way said, what about HPC? It seems to be the unsung hero here. And they said, it's completely true that HPC was so instrumental to the research work that they did. The whole thing, it was a more than a decade of research that went into this thing and that completely enabled by supercomputing. The two systems, by the way, were the Jade system, which is like a 2016 mm. system, and Sierra, which I've always had the sense, you know, that because Summit was the more powerful system, that Sierra was really in the shadow of Summit, uh, no pun intended. Yes, but It yes. was nice to see Sierra get its day in the sun, too. I think that's a really good point, yes. <laughs> so it was a major achievement. This is the National Ignition Facility. And for the first time, they got more energy out of it than they put into it. Now, that's extremely important, but it's also not really at the end of the process yet. The whole process to actually get to fusion energy includes many, many more components that require progress in terms of just how many times you can do this per second rather than per week, in terms of how much energy you need before you can generate the energy that you actually put into this thing. And you add it all up and it feels like you are still several years away from actually having fusion energy as a reliable source. And, and maybe that's a segue into another conversation we had and you started, which is sort of the summer versus winter. And of course, the answer is summer, but let's let's chat about that. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the thought I had reflecting on the year a little bit is these winters and the classic example cycle is AI winters going back to the 70s and, and the, the 1980s. And looking at these big technology areas, the quantum fusion that are receiving so much attention, time, smarts, and investment. Do we see any of these areas going back into winter? I mean, I find it hard to think that we will. Now, on the issue, say, of fusion, and we see it in quantum, there are some voices being raised that this is being hyped. And once you get into hype cycles, that can lead to real disappointment. It can move into venture firms, for example, pulling away from investing in them. And the Progress can really shut down, but my overall sense is that we've got the underlying technology that's so powerful in support of R&D work that in all of these areas, I'm not sure we're going to go back into winters, that we're going to continue to see progress being made. My view, and hopefully this is a positive note to end the, end yeah. the, end the last episode of the year with, is the level of progress and the cumulative level of progress is just incredible. And never in human history have we been making so much progress so substantially across so many different levels. However, 
when we talk about a winter, it's really about our expectations, isn't it? So we have a responsibility to set expectations properly, intelligently, and with open eyes. Science takes its time. Science is not quite predictable. You know, it's like debugging. It's not debugged until it's debugged. And you could get lucky and you can have breakthroughs that you didn't expect to have. And you could also get unlucky. You have bugs that are thorny that you cannot navigate around. And when you look at fusion, quantum computing, AI, some of the advanced predictive models that exist in, in, in HPC, all of those are incredibly positive things that are happening. But if your expectation is that you're going to start using them for something tomorrow, and in fact, it's going to be you know six months from now, then you're going to be disappointed and you think that's a winter. Well, it's not a winter. It's that you didn't assess it right. <laughs> and that's my view. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's the responsibility of the, the, the folks that are putting out the news about groundbreaking progress. In fact, I, I once read a comment, somebody writing a piece about hype in, in technology. There's been so much groundbreaking news, there's no longer any ground to be broken, you know. So, <laughs> it, you know, it is it is incumbent on the announcing organizations, if you will, to try to bring as much perspective as they can within a larger context. As you've said about fusion, we're still a long way away from commercially available ready sources of fusion energy that are clean and carbon-free and all those great things that we all want. Yes, yes. I think if we're going to report from inside the lab, then we have to recognize that it's called a lab. It's not a factory. It's not mm. a you know production environment. It's a lab. It's, it's scientists pushing it forward. And at some point, it's going to happen, but it's not there yet. Right. So overall, what a fantastic year. What a just incredible level of progress. Really delighted to be part of this industry, delighted to be living at this time in history. And I hope you agree with some of that and are having as much fun. <laughs> That's a great final note, I think, for our last episode of the year and our first one for next year. So thanks so much again. Thank you all. Thank you to all of our listeners. Happy holidays and see you next time. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.